Claire Keegan's novel Small Things Like These has not been off the bestseller list since it was published in October of last year. The book is set in 1985 where we meet Bill Furlong, a coal and timber merchant in New Ross. He's under pressure in one of the busiest periods of the year, the days running up to Christmas. Small Things Like These has won the Ambassador's Prize for Best Irish Novel, published in France, the Kerry Group Prize for Irish Novel of the Year, the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction, and was shortlisted for both the Rathbones Folio Prize and the Booker Prize. It has now been made into a film, with Killian Murphy set to play the lead role. Claire Keegan will be reading from her book this weekend at the Way With Words Festival in County Wicklow, and I'm absolutely delighted that she's with us on Arena this evening. Claire, I don't know where to start in terms of complimenting you on small things like these, but I guess the list of awards kind of speaks for itself. Um, what do they mean to you? It means it means being read. That's the most important thing. I think all of us who write, you know, you go off in, into your own room and you sit there quietly for a long time wondering over things and pondering and and you do it all because you must believe you have something to say, something that matters. And in the end, it's it's the reader who who completes the work for you. And particularly, particularly I think I've heard writers talk about this before in terms of the Booker Prize and that shortlisting, which is it's such a phenomenal place to get with any novel. That not only does it get you readers uh, and, and will get you readers and has got you readers for small things like these, but it also can have an effect on the back catalogue and send people back looking towards uh, your previous writings. Have you begun to notice that? Have you got rumblings of that type of thing happening? Oh, yes. Yes, I have. And Foster has been reissued. It's just been uh, published as a hardback for the first time in the US. And also, we're just going over the texts of Antarctica and Walk the Blue Fields now. And I just today received the new cover from Faber for Antarctica. So, so yes, all of that is happening. That uh, suggests to me a, a very exciting time. Have you have you a sense of it being a, some kind of pivotal moment within your career? I don't have a career. <laughs> if if uh, it's not where I write, I don't see myself as having a career. I think a career has something to do with being successful on some kind of a ladder. If if I was a career woman, I probably would have tried to get a job working for the UN, doing something like that. I think to work as an artist is to go against what is career thinking and to go off and and get lost and maybe hopefully get lucky as I did and find some readers. And when you say then that, um, you know, working in working in the arts is a different or working in a a creative occupation is is a different way of of living. what are you looking for or what were you looking for by going into that world? I wanted to write something beautiful. I wanted to say something that mattered. I wanted to explore what language could do with my imagination, where my imagination can take me, where my imagination can take others. Um, it, it wasn't about being well-known mm. or wealthy. Small things like these, specifically, you know, if, if one were to look at it and the, and the period in, in Ireland's social and political history that it deals with, we're in the 1980s, we're still talking about uh, things like the Magdalene laundries in, in Ireland. We're still talk, talking about the maltreatment of women who had uh, children without being married. 
uh, we're still talking about uh, a looking down on those women and a mal a, a serious mistreatment of, of those women. The imagination was what fired you, however. Does that politics or that socio-political element, did that arrive in later to the novel? I, I don't think it came in later. I think my politics are all over my work. I don't think you, you add that at the end. I think it's there as part of, of what you believe in and it's bound to come out. Um, I was interested in exploring the perversity of Catholic Ireland the two Irish writers I most admire, Joyce and McGahern, did this. And and uh, perverse is, is not an exaggeration. It comes from the Latin pervertere to, I think, to turn away from what is right or good. So it perversely became difficult to practice Christianity, Christ's teachings in the Catholic Ireland we created. And of course, the, these women didn't impregnate themselves. One has to wonder where the unmarried fathers were. Yeah, it's never, it's never a question that we, that we get a, su- a, a suitable or a, an acceptable answer to, really, is it, uh, that particular one? What was the starting point for small things like these? Was there a character? Was there an image? Was there a voice? It started off after uh, I was coming back from UCC. I was writer in residence there a long time ago, and I was coming back and stopped for breakfast. And there was a, a two-page spread in the Irish Times on the Ferns Report, and uh, there was there was a somebody who had been mistreated had been put into a shed, and for some reason. It was a boy, and he always stayed with me. Um, it was almost as though he was asking me to write his story. And then a long time passed, and I sat down to write a short story. And the short story was told from the boy's point of view. And he and his father, who who was um, a coal merchant, went to went to a shed at a boarding school and found a, a little boy just his own age, you know, a young boy, just his own age, locked in the shed. And his father bade him to just lock the door and come on and said nothing. And I I just always wondered what the boy would think of his father then, having done what he did to another child, a boy just like him. Or would he learn that he was different, that he wasn't like the other boy? And does family connection keep you safe? Are you are you superior because you have a father? And so then my preoccupation switched and I became preoccupied with how the father would deal with that experience of teaching his son to leave a boy in a coal shed and to come on and to say nothing. And how would you... How would you carry that? And would you be able to call yourself a decent man and a good father having taught your son to act that way, to do that? So then I found Furlong, gladly found Furlong (laughs) after a long time. And um, and he became the central character in, in this book. 
I, I was speaking to somebody about uh, about the nature of the book and why it, it, it I, I found it, I couldn't put it down uh, on, on the first reading. In fact, I was asked to give a list of books that I wanted to read again, that I was sorry I'd never be able to read again for the first time. And your, your book was, was amongst, uh, amongst those books. But what really, I, and, and I mentioned it specifically in this thing to say that, you know, there isn't a word out of place. It's very economic in its telling or economical in its telling. There doesn't seem to be a, a, a anything out of place. There's never an overstated sentence, an over lengthy paragraph. It's not even an over lengthy book. Does it? Does that take a lot of paring down for you, or are you? Do you just take your time before you put anything down on the page to start? I don't go on very much. I don't have a, a huge manuscript and then cut it down. I just go through several reimaginings of it, if you want to call it that, several drafts, and I just try and get the writing and the emotion in the writing closer and closer to what it is I I want to say about these lives and try, while I'm doing that, to say something freshly in the English language about, about what it means to be human. The other aspect of the book that comes out quite a lot is the period. You were talking about the 1980s and it kind of feels like we're back there again in, in some ways, doesn't it? In terms of in terms of economics at any rate, the, the 80s was that time people scrabbling for money, particularly at this time of year coming up to Christmas. Uh, obviously, you couldn't predict <laughs> that this was we were going to be in a similar situation in, in, in this particular moment in time. But what do you think that is, that, that, that aspect of a book like yours, that it can speak to the immediate moment as much as it does speak about the past? Well, human nature doesn't change. And if you write in an unexaggerated way, I think people relate to that. And I'm probably the least fashionable writer I know, and, and I read works by the dead. You know, most... <laughs> The joke amongst my students is that somebody has died and I can read them now. <laughs> and I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, human emotion ever dates. Being in love in Chekhov's time was the same as it is now. But I do disagree with you about things being now, being like things were in the 1980s. Things for women have changed. Things for gay people have changed. I think we had the highest unemployment ever in 1985. I think it was 17 or 18 percent. And that's not the case now. And and I do think people are being heard and listened to and have. I, I, I think things are, are better for people now. So it, the Irish society of today is is one that certainly by comparison with the 1980s, you'd be a lot more proud of. Certainly, I certainly I think it's better. I'm not. I'm not sure about being proud. It has been reported in terms of small things like these that Killian Murphy has been scouting film locations in Wexford. What do you know of this, Claire Keegan? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I couldn't go and meet him there in New Ross because I was teaching up in uh, Donegal, which was lovely, also at the on on that same day. Up for the Ellingham uh, Festival, mm. but yes, he went. He went into Saint Mary's School there, and and of course, <laughs> I think he was looking for extras, you know, in for in in the girls' school, which is lovely. I, I just by chance, by coincidence, I'm going down there um, next month. 
And uh, yes, Killian really was interested from the very beginning. It was he who actually initiated all of this. He 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 really sees himself as as furlong that he he wants to play this part and it's somehow close to his heart. And uh, Ender Walsh has already written the screenplay and um, and they have very good producers behind them. So they are they are all set. I think I think for for February. But um, perhaps I I shouldn't say any more. Not that I yeah. I know very much more anyhow. And and is that how you you would treat a, a film version? Because obviously we had on Colleen Kuhn, which was based on your on your novel Foster as well. Do you yeah you hand the work over and step to the one side and say no, nah, it has nothing not nothing to do with me, but it's not mine now. I leave it to somebody else to do what they're going to do with it. Is that your your mode of modus operandi of choice when it comes to films of your books? Yes, of course. Who who wants somebody looking over their shoulder and telling them what to do or being micromanaged. I mean, if you're if you're going to give something to an artist and trust in their making something out of it, that's what you should do. You should give wholeheartedly. Um, I mean, if they have any questions and they have sent me the script, I'd be, I'd be very pleased to answer them. But um, no, I, I just I just hope they enjoy making the film and make a make a good film. And when it comes to, to, to seeing them, I mean, obviously there was such positive news or, and reaction to on Colleen Kuhn. Do you look at the films and see your work or do you look at the films and see something totally different? Well, I, I, haven't, I haven't seen many films, and, but I, I have an interest in film. I don't, I don't watch television at all. And again, mostly I, I watch films that are, that are really old. <laughs> so you, does that suggest to me that you will or will not be watching either on Colleen Kuhn or the potentially the the film version of small things like these i i hope to i i certainly hope to claire congratulations once again on the novel i'm i'm so glad that it is it is doing maybe not as you say maybe not in career terms but that it is bringing you the readers that that you want to to read your work on that your work deserves so much thanks so much for being with us this evening claire thank you very much it's a pleasure and that's Claire Keegan. Claire will be at the Way With Words Literature Festival tomorrow in Blessington Library, County Wicklow, reading from her novel. And Claire also reads the entire novel, Small Things Like These, on RTE Radio 1's Book on One, starting on Monday the 5th of December at 11.20pm. I suppose I can listen to it for the first time when it's on on radio. And uh, that will be running on towards Christmas. Small Things Like These, more details about the Blessington event on wherewithwords.ie. Small Things Like These is published by Faber. There are times in life when facing, when facing illness, for example, when everyday language fails us, when the reality of what is happening to the body is impossible for the mind to comprehend. In Poetry Ireland's new anthology, Vital Signs, Poems of Illness and Healing, the editor and poet Martin Dyer has gathered a collection of verse by Irish, UK and US poet, poets that treats of medical experience and adversity. And by doing so, he offers meaning and connection to the reader. The collection has a foreword from President Michael D. Higgins and includes work spanning three centuries of poets, including Patrick Kavanagh, Seamus Heaney, Elaine Feeney, Yvonne Boland and Derek Mahan. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio this evening by editor Martin Dyer and two of the poets featured in the collection, Jane Clark and Kerry O'Brien. Uh, Martin, in in the introduction, you say that every poem 
in Vital Signs has influenced the publication as a whole. Explain that a bit further to me. I guess, Sean, I'm thinking there about the fact that I, I very quickly at the beginning of the project started to think about it as two things, a collection of poems and a book that was going to explore a specific subject matter, illness, healing, healthcare and medicine, as you've said. Mm. And, and I was thinking very much about, about the readers. What kind of offering is an anthology? And, and so every, t- every time I got a poem that, that fitted, that um, it, 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 I had a sense, this, this suits, this is going in. But at the same time, there was a sense that the book had changed. Um, I'm, I, I feel that I've found poems that have a vibrancy. Um, uh, they stand together. Uh, they, they, they exist as a book, but at the same time, each poem has a power that's aimed directly at the reader in its own way. So illness and healing was, is, that's the idea, that's the concept. But those two words mean a great many things within the book. Yeah, and, and very, very different treatments across very different poets. I was mm. also struck in uh, President Michael D. Higgins in the foreword. He talks about the closeness of the, the arts world and the science world that we often think of as being totally separate. And he has a great quote in it from Albert Einstein, who says, imagination is more important. This is Albert Einstein says this now. Imagination is more important than knowledge for knowledge is limited to all we know and understand while imagination embraces the entire world and all there ever will be to know and understand. It kind of explains part of what you're doing here in terms of the mix of science. We are looking at science and the arts together in this book, aren't we? We are indeed, Sean. And I think, well, if you think about it this way, I think many, many scientists, uh, many doctors will be, will feel flattered to be considered to be um, poetic individuals are artistic and artistic in terms of their work. And similarly, a poet is flattered and gratified if it's suggested that they are people of the world, that they are people of facts and of truth, and they're not, they haven't got their heads in the, in the clouds. Mm. Uh, I think individually, many of the poets in the anthology represent a, a, a hybrid approach to life in, in, in mm. that way. They are thinking about the body, they're thinking about biology, they're thinking about medical science. In many cases, they're coming from a, a doctor's or a nurse's perspective in terms of what they write. Similarly, in a very interesting way, the poets themselves have a way almost of uh, shouldering medicine out of the way um, in, in, in tremendously imaginative ways. There are poets who present themselves as, as healers they, they, mm. they had these authoritative voices telling the reader what to do, how to navigate out of a, out of me, out of mental illness, how to how, how to cope with illness. Uh, Patrick Cavan is a great example. Um, his poem, "The Hospital," uh, is a, is a narrative about um, his stay in the Rialto Chest Hospital in the mid nineteen fifties, where he received possibly the best care imaginable. It, it had evolved from a, a, a sanatorium mm. into a, a, a centre of excellence for cancer. He was very, very fortunate. But in the poem, Kavanagh tells us, I came through this swimmingly. I coped with this because I am a poet. My heart is full of love and full of poetry. I transcended it. And you can too. This is what we need to do. Of That's Dr. Dr. Kavanagh. Yeah, he came through it because he's from Mullen. That's why yeah, I'm sure it stood for I, him, Sean. I knew I'd get it in there somewhere. <laughs> Any mention of Kavanagh and I'm off. Um, Jane, Jane Clark, where do you see yourself sitting in that aspect that Martin has spoken about there, that kind of crossover, if you like, between science and art? 
well, uh, very much from the arts point mm. of view. And I mean, the poem that I have in the anthology is from the point of view of being close to someone who is very ill and, you know, how, how you know, responding to that. Uh, but I mean, part of what I love about the anthology is there are poets in here who are also nurses. There are poets in here also doctors. Mm. And I do love the bringing together of that information with the uh, the artistic uh, perspective as well. I think that works so well. Oh, tell us a little bit. You you mentioned the poem, your poem that I want you to read for it, Metastasis. And yes. this is, the, who who were you writing about here? You said it was a close, a loved one. Yeah, it? well, uh, um, my very close friend, Shirley McClure, who also has a poem mm. in this uh, anthology. And Shirley died six years ago. And I wrote this poem uh, in during the last two years of her life when I was feeling that powerlessness that one feels when someone close to you is mm. very ill. And so that's what the poem is trying yeah. to convey. Will you read Metastasis for us? Yeah. Metastasis. I beg the, your pardon, that's my mispronunciation, metastasis. The way couch grass takes hold of a garden... Spread seeds, runners, white rhizomes long before we notice. The way it grows more tenacious when we begin to dig. Gathering different names. Doggrass, scutchgrass, quickgrass, twitchgrass. The way it creeps along the ground, then sends a root deep down. Slips silent under fences colonises beds and gets itself entangled through Agapanthus midnight blue. The way that it persists. The way that it persists. That's Jane Clark reading her poet Metastasis and that's from the collection that we're speaking about this evening. Vital Signs, Poems of Illness and Healing. And Martin, it is interesting how Jane brings that poem, you know, into this, the the persistence uh, of of the growing of the growing thing, uh, you you lecture or you work in the School of Medicine in UCD. What is the work that you do there? I'm in Trinity actually. Oh, sorry, and, Trinity, uh, I beg your pardon. Yeah, um, I'm involved in the non-science dimension of medical training. Uh, so I I'm involved in medical ethics. I'm involved in a broad field called medical humanities. Um, right now, I'm teaching a creative writing course to undergraduate uh, medical students. And um, there's a few different dimensions to the to the work. The so, for example, if you think if I think about why um, poetry is central mm. uh, in terms of uh, my work in the School of Medicine in Trinity, um, what you're thinking about is acknowledging that the mainstream curriculum, um, while full of uh, necessary scientific work, um, doesn't in itself contain opportunities for medical students to reflect uh, about where they're going, specifically going into the lives of their future patients and also going down a path where they're they're changing very, very rapidly. Um, so something like poetry, something like creative writing is an opportunity for them to slow down, uh, is an opportunity for them to respond imaginatively to the profound change of moving from the position of being mm. a layperson like myself um, to becoming a doctor into a, a, a different, uh, into a different social standing, into a different kind of code, into a place of enormous responsibility. And, and, and medicine itself has acknowledged many decades ago that if you leave 
that those formative transitions to chance, if you leave it to what uh, doctors refer to as the hidden curriculum, picking it up on the ward, so to speak, um, you, you, you neglect the, mm. the medical students and in, in potentially in ethical terms, you're neglecting patients. So, so poetry is about a, a kind of intensification of the personal dimension of medicine you know, as it exists within medical training. And certainly that background, um, maybe in terms of the initial idea of the, the anthology, I had a handful of poems that mm. I had had the, the thrilling of experience experience of journeying with to the point of seeing medical students being so animated by the work, uh, a sense that they were uh, connected fully to their own idealism, uh, connecting back even to who they were as secondary school students in many cases, because we could forget yeah. this very easily. Um, you can't be a medical student without uh, excelling across the board in, in secondary Seven, school. Yeah, so and that includes art subjects and science. Absolutely. Subject. You you're, need, you're, dealing you with, you're dealing with truly yeah. abundant talent yeah. and... Let me go to Kerry, um, Kerry O'Brien. You have a dual role in here since we were talking about science and art. We might talk about, I, I, might I call it a more technical or administrative side in terms of the book, Kerry. Um, you are the production manager as well as having a poem in it, which, uh, which we will come to in, in just a moment. So is there a balance in your life in those terms? What was the role of production manager and what, what, did you, what, what was your involvement in, in that way in the book? So it's kind of like the midwife, really, bringing the book into the world, yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're, the, you're the resident midwife of the, of the, of the collection. That's why there's so much about childbirth. Yeah, no, it was like, um, so I was very lucky to be involved in this. Um, I was freelance at Poetry Ireland, project manager. So it was just this fantastic six months, really, working very closely with Martin and Paul Lennon, phenomenal person to work with, publications manager. And we were talking outside of how we gave Martin such a hard time talk about every single, the reason the poems in this book are so strong and they're so life-changing is we really, each one had to stand up for itself. You know, Martin really had to prove, you know, that each one was necessary. And just, I think it really shows like the selection is so varied. Jane mentioned this earlier. It's just so phenomenal. And it was a really, what I didn't expect was that it was a really emotional process. Mm. Like, I'm sure you flicked through it now. I don't yeah. know if you've read the whole thing, Sean, but like. Not all poems, the poems, I have to admit. I <laughs> yeah, didn't get but to you all will. of them today. You will, but they're just so deeply moving and emotional. Like, this book is the kind of thing that I'm going to come back to you for years and years because... So many of them resonate with people on so many different levels. You'll always have a loved one who might get ill or personal experience, whatever. And it's just, it's just so beautiful. So mm -hmm. honoured to be involved in it. Like it was just a brilliant, brilliant time and to discover so many poets. Like James Dickey is in it, right? James Dickey, who wrote the novel Deliverance, mm -hmm. as in the film Deliverance. Yeah. He's a phenomenal poem about his father dying. You know, just things that I never knew he was a poet. Like and Raymond the same Carver. Guy. I saw Raymond Carver, Raymond Carver in there too. Yeah. You know, uh, Raymond Carver, the short story. You don't think Raymond Carver, the poet. Yeah, which yeah. Sends me off to read that when the show finishes this evening. However, let me uh, ask you a little bit about your po your own poem in The Connection which is Cleanse. Just give us a little bit of the background to this because it's very interesting, I think, Kerry. Yeah, so this is actually a thing that happens. I don't think it's an official thing that happens, mm. but a Belfast journalist told me about this, a friend of his in the British Army during the Troubles. And this is something that would happen just before they'd kind of finish off a mission, I suppose. So I won't give it all away. I'll read the poem now yeah. and we'll talk about it, yeah? Cleanse. I heard a man talk of it once. At the end of every mission, they order them into the sea, where nothing is forgotten in salt light. Stripped bare, going in slowly, shy almost, after the filth of war, the heat, all of it caught in their eyes, they stand facing the light as if for the first time. So in a sense, I suppose, you know, 
we're talking about like PTSD mm. and kind of like a psychological and physical cleansing after a trauma. But I think it's kind of like, it's also what great poetry can do. You know, you want to make sense of what you've been through and to let go of it. And I think just so many of these poems really, just really do that. You know, you're confronting illness, you're confronting these life experiences. It's not just kind of, oh, comforting. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's just, it's so, they're just so powerful. And I think it's when you start talking about things, you know, when you really start talking about truthful, difficult experiences, like PJ Gallagher a few weeks ago, people resonate because... Being ill or having any kind of experience like this can be so isolating and frightening. But when you talk about it, that's when the healing part comes in, mm. you know? So I just think everyone's going to love this book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and the organising principle then within the book, uh, Martin, because this is always when you, when you, once you decide to have an anthology of, every, of anything, you have to work out, well, what order am I going to put things in and how am I going to do that? You have what? What do you refer to? Gateway quotations. That's the, the term that you use. Mm-hmm. So the book is in five sections with a gateway quotation. Let's talk about. We'll talk about a couple of them possibly. Straight and swift to my wounded I go is how the first section opens. And I guess being a poet, you you don't want to state it. Here's what this section is about. But what does that suggest to you? That gateway quotation. Well, that's um, that's from Walt Whitman's The Wound Dresser, and uh, the idea with the gateway quotations those those titles on the five sections is that um that the something is suggested uh, a note is sounded and the reader who reads that section in its entirety will come across that line again and hopefully the context in the poem will will add to it i think uh, well the first section is about um hospitals clinical spaces and about uh, healthcare professionals doing their work and Whitman again, another example maybe of a character who's shouldering the medics out of the way mm-hmm. in a um, very much uh, of his time. It w- that was very much a, a New York philosophical thing to be thinking that poetry might uh, replace medicine or that the, the medical profession was uh, disreputable at any rate. But uh, Whitman is exulting in his role as as a nurse and he is... He's talking in these euphoric terms about uh, triage and about um, having the energy uh, to, to to see everyone and looking into their eyes. And so he's got, he gives us this exaggerated model of empathy, I think, and which an empathy, of course, is, is part of mm. healthcare work. So I suppose if we start with Whitman, uh, and, and the first poem in the in the book is Cavan is the hospital, which which opens with the the line, um, a year ago I fell in love with the functional ward of a chest hospital. Another exaggerated, uh, ironic mm. line that draws us in, and then subsequently the poems themselves gives give us something um, more relatable. Um, let, let me just come to you then again, Jane. Uh, in term, when when you see your your poem in a collection like this and. It, your own poem fits in the, isn't it, in the section um, "Blasted by Thousand Sons"? Is that that's the that's it's taken the, from uh, Anne Kennedy's uh, "In the Women's Cancer Ward"? It's a representation of chemotherapy, actually, "Blasted by a Thousand Sons," uh, which also refers to the Shirley MacLaine poem that is that is in the collection uh, as well. When you see your poem with a gateway quotation like that, do you see the poem in, with fresh eyes? Oh yes, and you also see it with, it with fresh eyes because of the other poems that are around it in the anthology. Mm. And I suppose the big thing for me about the anthology is that when you read a poem like this, if you're going through something like this, you don't feel alone anymore. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing that this book does. Which is why I will choose the Derek Mahan poem 
to, to finish up with because there may well be people listening to this who are thinking I want to get that book because there's a specific maybe within themselves within their family unit within their circle of friends somebody who's dealing with difficult illnesses at the moment I think the Derek Mahan poem Martin if I get you to finish by, by reading that and I have been holding on to your book so let me hand it back to you um, if I get you to finish by reading that for us it will kind of set that up for us in some ways be delighted Everything is going to be all right. How should I not be glad to contemplate the clouds clearing beyond the dormer window and a high tide reflected on the ceiling? There will be dying. There will be dying. But there is no need to go into that. The lines flow from the hand unbidden and the hidden source is the watchful heart. The sun rises in spite of everything, and the far cities are beautiful and bright. I lie here in a riot of sunlight, watching the day break and the clouds flying. Everything is going to be all right. The poetry of Derek Mahan there, everything is going to be all right, and that's uh, yet another one of the poems in the collection we've been talking about this evening, Vital Signs. Uh, Martin Dyer, Jane Clark and Carrie O'Brien Vital Signs, Poems of Illness and Healing is the collection they've been speaking to us about it's published by Poetry Ireland and there will be a celebration of Vital Signs at the Dingle Literary Festival this coming Sunday in on the shirt that's at 2.30pm the event will include readings from contributors Anne-Marie Nicoroin Sean Hewitt Kerry will be there Kerry O'Brien will be there followed by Martin Dyer and the Poets in Conversation with Dr. Pader O'Fionon. Tickets and full festival programme details on dinglelit.ie. Time now for album reviews. First up will be Norwegian electronic duo Roiksop. Finally, the Norwegian lessons pay off. They have teamed up with a number of vocal and visual artists for the third in their Profound Mystery series, which began in 2022. Each track in this album comes with its own short film and animation. And then we have Way's Blood. The new album is called And In The Darkness, Hearts Aglow. Fifth album from American singer Natalie Merring and the second chapter in a trilogy that began in 2019's Titanic Rising. Rising. Louise Bruton and Simon Marr have been listening. Let's start with Roik's Up. This is a track, one for a bit of wordplay, Me and Euphoria. Me and Euphoria from Uroiksop and their third, the, the third in the Profound Mystery series, Profound Mysteries 3, three rather, as I said, Louise Bruton and Simon Marr, our reviewers on this Friday evening. <laughs> I said I finally get the, the Norwegian lessons play off, but all I'm saying is Roiksop. That's all I'm prepared to say. <laughs> and, and no other name <laughs> is going to cross my lips. Simon, 
Who are the two people that make up this duo? Well, th- thank you. Thank you for that, John. I, I, you love the question. I knew you would. Uh, Jorbjorn and Svein uh, are the two who are behind uh, Roy Club. And they have been Jorbjorn around. Jorbjorn who? Yeah, and they've, they've been around now since late uh, 1990s. And what happened was, I suppose they, they almost evolved from being techno DJs. And a lot of the very, yeah. very early stuff was quite serious techno. And then they just became, came into the 2000s and became an awful lot more dreamy. And right. that's what they've done. And they emerged from the sort of that Tromso techno scene of the 1990s and have ended up with what they are now and have always have spent their, their time pushing themselves and pushing themselves as I say ever more RT is maybe one word you could use but to the point where they're now producing though I was terrified when anybody talks about a trilogy I think concept oh, yeah, albums yeah, yeah. and I think yes but this is on the much better side of that Okay <laughs> Torbjorn Brundtland and Sven Berger I'm prepared to go Mm. Uh, with those particular, that's they've been together since the age of like, like playing music together since the age of twelve back in nineteen ninety. Something beautiful that friendship and collaboration could last for that long. And who was with them on the track that we just heard, Louise? Okay, here's me trying to test out my Norwegian. It's Gunhild Ramsey Kovac, who isn't actually credited on a lot mm. of places. So I had to dig deep for that. Um, so that's that's herself. Now they're very. There are. I know it's not always about length of track, but there are some incredibly long tracks on this album. They're they're not looking for kind of easy radio play here, Louise. No, I think they're actively trying to avoid easy radio play. So Mm. they decided after their last album, which was released in 2014, that Mm. they were done with the traditional album format. So this is why they've come out with this trilogy. Um, And probably one of the most impressive things about this trilogy is that it started in January of this year with the Profound Mysteries 1 coming out then and then the second during the summer and here we are in a third one at the end of the year. And some of the songs are 10 minutes long and they are these beautiful kind of cosmic waltzes that don't fit into a particular genre or particular particular narrative, which maybe that's what they mean about a non-traditional album format. But to us listening, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's packaged like an album. You chose a, an 8 minute 15 second song as uh, yes. <laughs> one of your highlights from the album. Uh, Simon, this is Feel It. What's, what stood out to you about this what, particular what recording? They, what they tend to do particularly well is they do those building songs and I think a huge amount of that comes from their, I suppose their nightclub past and their, their even their homebrew music creating past so that there is very, very little nothing that you would get onto a 7-inch single on this. But when they do it, they give the songs time and mm. space to breathe and the result that you get is a track like Feel It which is, a, is really, really good stuff for both in a club but also for at home with a set of headphones on. Yeah, we're all like dogs in the back seat of a car now, <laughs> with our heads bouncing around and bobbing up, uh, bobbing up and down. Um, that's the nature of this album. You can't sit still listening to most of it, Louise. But what about the the animations and the films that that run alongside the tracks? How important are they to understanding and enjoying the album? Um, you can definitely enjoy one without the other. That, mm. That's for sure. But it is just very impressive the fact that they have undertaken this massive project and they've been able to bring in so many collaborators on board musically and visually 
Um, and each video is expensive. <laughs> that, that, that is <laughs> the main thing. It's a mean? lot of money. I, I want to know how they managed to do that. Right, okay. So you both enjoyed this quite a lot, it seems, Simon. Yeah, yeah. I thought, as, I say, as it goes on, not not every track works as well as that track does, but it's just one of those yeah. albums that when it works so well, you know and you can feel that like everything has gone into this. There's no phone on this in. There's no algorithms yeah. or formulas that work here. This is really what they want to do and they do it so well. Okay, stars from you, Simon. I have a solid four. Solid four. What are you saying overall and star rating, Louise? A more solid four and a half. It's just, it's great experimentation. It kind of reminds me of kind of when Giorgio Morado was able to go nuts when Tubular Bells first came out. It's that sort of freedom of expression. So we're in that, we're in that, we're in that time of seminal spot. Exactly. Okay. Well four and a half from Louise. Four from Simon for Reich's Up, Profound Mysteries 3. Let's move on to Way's Blood, new album called And In The Darkness Hearts Aglow. This is a track called Twin Flame. Serious chilled out zone uh, listening to that track, Twin Flame from Way's Blood and the album called And In the Darkness Hearts Glow. Who are we talking about when we talk about Way's Blood, Simon? Well, when we're, uh, Natalie Merring, as you mentioned earlier on, is Way's Blood, uh, has been around for a while, has a really strict Pentecostal religious upbringing, and as if she spent her time since she started playing music at the age of 12 or 13 trying to move away from that. And she's moved away from it, got herself to what seemed to be a really nice place in her life, and then mm. particularly. Particularly when you think about the story of this album, it's as if lockdown came along and it all went wrong and she found herself alone and she found herself being with people, even when she was with people after lockdown, that she was still by herself and that she felt that people started, people lost all those connections, but they lost the ability to know people. Yeah. So that you're saying that part of the story of this album then is that kind of existential angst. Would you agree with that, Louise? Yeah, she's a good one, woman for the ennui. Like there's a lot of, Joe, who we thought we were isn't who we are now and it's getting lost in yourself. And um, I think the song The Worst Is Done, she kind of touches on a line where she says we didn't, th- didn't think we'd all lean so much into hyper-isolation mm. where perhaps we were kind of ready for the fall of sorts. Yeah, yeah hyper-isolation is, is fairly heavy, fairly heavy term. In fact, even, even when she talks about the worst being done is that it's almost the way that she's speaking about it because the spoiler is, is that it isn't and she doesn't <laughs> believe for a second that the worst is done. Is that the worst of this phase may be done but what we're left with could be even worse. Yeah, which is very... Very depressing of a Friday evening it has to be said but that to a certain extent feels to me like it's the second half it's side two of the album in some ways and another uh, another artist who's not afraid of the lengthy song most of the songs here are six or seven minutes long um, apart from a couple of little interludes in between that are you know whatever 14-15 seconds and a minute and a half something like that but the first half of the album is Karen Carpenter is alive and well Mm-hmm. And and is now called Ways Blood. Certainly, vocally, she's very like her in the opening part of the album. Yeah, when when I was listening to her, I was thinking I was on with you a few weeks ago. I mm. think with Angel Olsen, and I yeah. just kept thinking to that. It's just that beautiful kind of dusty pop music that's just mourning something. And in this case, um, with Ways Blood, she's she's not quite sure what it is that she is mourning. 
where and I think that there is quite such an openness to that and the kind of sadness sort of envelops us all as we listen. Yeah, there's a real melancholy about it, but it's, it's the big lush strings and orchestration behind it, which again kind of made me think of the Carpenters in, in some ways. Let's have a listen to a track called Children of the Empire, which is the second track in the album. We're all lost. Big full sound there and that dusty vocal in there as well. Um, does this album overall work for you? We're talking about Weiss Blood and In the Darkness Hearts Glow. Does it work overall for you, Simon? It does. No, I have to say I was I was surprised even at how much I enjoyed it, particularly having read about some of the themes. But just it's as I said, the arrangements, you know, it really, really, you could be sitting in California in the 1970s, having a nice cold drink and listening to this and you would absolutely love it. And this, I think this is really good and well worthy of three and a half stars. Three and a half stars from you, Sam. And um, what are you saying, Louise? Um, it's three and a half for me as well. I kind of feel like it, it drifts off at the midpoint and I kind of felt my, my eyes just going somewhere else. <laughs> my yeah. eyes and my ears. Okay. Um, we had intended to have three album reviews this evening, but such was the nature of the Claire Keegan interview and indeed the poetry item with Martin Dyer and Jane Carton, Carrie O'Brien, that we decided we would drop one of the albums. But I think, feel you both want to say a little something about Black Eyed Peas very quickly and not very positively I would guess Louise Bruton first of all Yeah no a huge amount of time effort and imagination went into making this album the most lifeless voidless piece of music that I've probably heard this year Okay yeah. Simon <laughs> I can only I can only agree with Louise there's something almost unnecessarily poor about it and unnecessarily cynical as well that it just make, it makes you find it just really disappointing it saddens me Okay, I'm not even going to ask you for stars because I kind of guess where they might go. Black Eyed Peas, it was rumoured, were to play the opening ceremony of the Qatar World Cup this Sunday. They have been confirmed to play at the Doha Club Golf Club on November the 20th in an event sponsored by Qatar Airways and Qatar Tourism. Robbie Williams and K-pop star Jungkook will perform at the opening ceremony of the World Cup. The former Take That member will take to the stage to begin the tournament in Qatar just as he did four years ago in Russia. Would that have affected your star rating? I wonder. Simon Marr and Louise Bruton, thanks for coming into us this evening. Roy Sop and Waste Blood and a little mention of Black Eyed Peas were the three artists we were looking at.